Judy was boring. Hello. Then Judy discovered Chumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to ChumbaCasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Roland Wheeler was a farmer by trade. And by most accounts, a difficult man to get along with. He was quick-tempered and prone to use his fists to prove a point. He was also a notoriously private person, which likely led him to move with his family to a remote settlement deep in the Vermont woods called Patch Hollow back in the 1830s. Patch Hollow was made up of only five families in total, which proved more than enough to get the rumor mill going about Wheeler. The nearest villages were that of Wallingford and Shrewsbury, and soon word reached the locals that Wheeler was guilty of what was described as committing an indiscretion with his wife's sister. Wallingford and Shrewsbury were deeply religious communities, and this sort of scandal wasn't tolerated. So several members of the local church's congregation got together and decided the best way to deal with Wheeler would be to tar and feather the man and ride him out of town on a rail. But word got back to Wheeler beforehand about what the townspeople were planning. So he prepared himself by sharpening his knife and barricading himself inside his house. On the night of May 11, 1831, an angry mob from Shrewsbury and Wallingford set out to Patch Hollow loaded down with jugs of rum, buckets of tar, and a sack full of feathers. But the group from Shrewsbury got lost in the wood, something which I think we can all safely assume had something to do with the jugs of rum they carried with them, and they ended up returning home without ever reaching their destination. But the group from Wallingford, on the other hand, did arrive at Wheeler's home, and they proceeded to lead an all-out assault on the cabin. At first they tried ordering Wheeler to come out, but he refused. They tried to kick in the door, but they soon realized Wheeler had barred it from the inside. So they had to resort to climbing up on the roof and prying open a hole through which they could climb. Three men dropped through the hole, but Wheeler was ready for them. They attacked each other in the dark. Wheeler slashed at the men wildly with a knife. He stabbed one of the men in the side and slashed another 14 times. By now, the other members of the angry mob at last managed to bash their way in through the door, and they came pouring into the cabin all at once. It was pure chaos in the tiny, darkened cabin. Fists flew, people shouted, and screamed bloody murder. In the dim light, it was practically impossible to see exactly what was going on. By the time all was said and done, the mob had managed to kill Roland Wheeler, or at least they thought they did. It turns out the man they killed wasn't Roland Wheeler at all, but a member of their own group, a fellow named Isaac Osborne. The group panicked and fled once they realized their mistake, leaving the blood-soaked body of their friend behind. And what of the man they'd actually come for? Well, Wheeler had managed to wrestle his way out of his attacker's grasp, where he crawled under the bed, pried up some floorboards, and escaped into the woods. Wheeler was later arrested and acquitted of all charges for stabbing the men who broke into his house on the grounds of self-defense. Two of his attackers were fined $60 apiece, while three others were fined $40. No one went to jail. 
The Patch Hollow Massacre, as it's come to be known, managed to leave an indelible mark on the community. Eventually, the other members of the Patch Hollow community abandoned their homes and let the woods reclaim them. If there is a lesson to be found in the story of the Patch Hollow Massacre, it may be that the woods is an area that lies just outside the bounds of what we like to think of as civilized society. In the woods, the laws of men and the accepted natural order of things often take a back seat to our most animalistic nature. We tell children cautionary tales of the big bad wolf, or of evil witches looking to turn lost children into their next meal. Because we know on some instinctive level that anything can happen out there in the woods if we're not careful. Even murder. For out there in the vast wilderness lies the unknown. And whereas sometimes the unknown can be completely benign, other times, the unknown people encounter in the woods can swallow them up just as surely as the big bad wolf in fairy tales. I'm Nate Hale, currently being held against my will by a family of Bigfoot and raised as their own. And this is The Conspirators. Stretching 250 miles between the Massachusetts border to Quebec, Canada, lie the Green Mountains of Vermont. The state of Vermont actually takes its name from this mountain range, which is derived from the French words Vermont, which literally translates to Green Mountains. It's rugged terrain, filled with dense forests and winding paths, making it a favorite for hikers looking for adventure. Long before French and English settlers ever came to the area, Native American tribes such as the Iroquois and Abenaki made their homes in these mountains and forests. Much of the region is difficult to access, even on foot. The mountains are full of remote, dark places, broken by marshlands and deep crevices where no one ever ventures. Ancient legends abound throughout the region of people seeing strange lights in the woods, of a mysterious wild man of the mountain, of untraceable noises and strange smells, of a mysterious presence that travelers claim to feel all around them when they venture into the vast wilderness, and of a particular magic stone that lies somewhere up on Glastonbury Mountain that can cause unsuspecting travelers who step on it to disappear forever. If you were to attempt to climb Glastonbury Mountain, you might find your way to the ghost town that shares the mountain's name. The town of Glastonbury was first chartered in 1761 by Benning Wentworth, then governor of New Hampshire who was engaged in a competition with the New York governor to see who could make the biggest land grab in the shortest span of time. Legend has it, Wentworth didn't know anything about the land he was claiming. He simply snatched it up by drawing lines on a map and declaring it as his. But the harsh long winters and remote and rugged terrain proved daunting to even the toughest settlers, and hardly anyone moved there until the 1800s. For a time, the lumber and charcoal industries became big business throughout the region. As more people moved to Glastonbury Mountain looking for work, two small settlements formed, the logging town of Fayville to the north and South Glastonbury, which became the headquarters for the charcoal industry in the area. Because of the steep mountainous terrain, a connecting road was never built between the two towns, and the two places remained isolated from one another. Over the years, Glastonbury has seen more than its fair share of misfortune. Disease decimated large numbers of the people who lived there. Many mothers died in childbirth, and more than a few people went mad there. 
1892, a logger named Henry McDowell snapped and beat another man named Jim Crowley to death. He was declared insane and sentenced to life in Waterbury Asylum, although he later managed to escape and was never seen again. Although legend has it that McDowell actually returned to Glastonbury Mountain and continued to live the life of an insane hermit somewhere in the wild. Of course, it's only natural that the area also has its fair share of Bigfoot sightings. In this case, the locals refer to the area's particular version of Bigfoot as the Wild Man, or sometimes the Bennington Monster. Legend has it that in the late 1800s, a stagecoach was passing through the area on a rainy night, when it was forced to stop at a washed-out road. The driver looked down and was astounded to see a massive footprint in the mud, much larger than any human foot could be. The passengers inside the coach then reported something very large that came charging out of the woods at them and attacked the wagon. The creature, everyone agreed, was tall enough to stand on two legs and stare directly in at them through the coach's windows, which meant it had to be over seven feet tall. The creature bellowed loudly and knocked the stagecoach over on its side with a series of massive blows. Then, just as quickly as it came, the Bennington monster ran away into the night. Although it's probably best to take any Bigfoot story with a healthy dose of skepticism, there are other disturbing stories originating out of these woods that can't be denied. In 1897, on the opening day of Vermont's first hunting season, a 40-year-old Woodford resident named John Harbor was mysteriously murdered in his deer camp south of Glastonbury. His brother and a family friend heard the fatal shot echoing in the woods, then Harbor crying out in pain. But although they found bloodstains on the ground... They didn't find Harbor's body for several hours. Whoever killed him tried to conceal the body by dragging it a considerable distance away from the place where he'd been shot. Today, South Glastonbury is just a withered skeleton of what had once been. Once the loggers clear-cut all the trees from the region, business dried up and people began to move out in droves. They tried for one season to turn the town into a tourist destination converting the traditional rail cars into an electric system to bring people up the mountain. But even converting the old loggers' boarding house into a hotel and the former company store into a casino wasn't enough to keep the town alive. In 1897, the first tourist season proved largely successful. But all the clear-cutting of trees led directly to the rapid demise of the town. With no trees to block the flow of water, the following year a devastating flood washed out the train tracks leaving no good way for people to visit the town, essentially ending it for all time. By the 1930s, the buildings throughout Glastonbury were largely abandoned and had fallen into disrepair. Ripley's Believe It or Not actually added an entry about the town's three remaining residents, the Madison family, who held every public office. But by 1937, even the Madisons were gone, and the state government officially disorganized the town allowing the wilderness to reclaim it. The name of the town still appears on some maps, although there really isn't a town there anymore. Just some decrepit old buildings and the occasional person who comes back to the area trying to live off the grid and make a go of bringing the place back to life. Although much of the trouble that befell the region can be written off as a combination of tragic but mundane circumstances mixed with local superstition, it is true that by the 1940s, something truly strange began to happen in the Glastonbury area. Something that nobody has been able to adequately explain, even today. 
The year 1945 was when the first person disappeared without a trace, setting off a string of strange disappearances that have baffled investigators for decades. On November 12, 1945, 74-year-old Mitty Rivers was hired by a group of four hunters to lead them up the mountain. Rivers worked as a hunting and fishing guide, and he knew these woods like the back of his hand. At first, things seemed to be going fine for the group. That is until they began to make their trek back to camp. Despite his age, Rivers was considered to be in excellent health. In fact, he managed to outpace every one of the hunters, who were all impressed with how well the old man handled the rough trails. Rivers got a bit ahead of the group, and the other hunters lost sight of him. They figured they'd catch up to him by the time they reached camp, only they didn't. When the four men got to camp, Rivers wasn't there. The men were worried because they were positive Rivers couldn't have gotten that far ahead of them, but there was no sign he ever reached the camp at all. Volunteers and police combed the area for the rest of the day. They originally thought they'd find Rivers in a matter of hours, since he was an experienced woodsman and knew how to survive in the wild. But the search went on for months, and no one has ever found any trace of the man. Paula Weldon, an 18-year-old Bennington College sophomore, was the next to disappear. On December 1st, 1946, the pretty blonde decided to take a hike on the long trail. She was wearing a bright red coat, which should have made her easy to spot, and plenty of people claimed to see her that day. A local man gave her a lift as far as his home in Woodford Hollow. At around 4 o'clock that afternoon, an employee of the Bennington Banner newspaper gave her directions. The last people who claimed to have seen her were an elderly couple who were walking the same trail behind Paula. According to them, when they rounded the same corner Paula had just turned down, she disappeared. By Monday afternoon, Paula hadn't returned to school and people were starting to get worried. The sheriff's department, along with 400 students and faculty members, began combing the area looking for her. Governor Mortimer Proctor called in the FBI, as well as the New York and Connecticut State Police, to join in the search. A $5,000 reward was offered and a famous clairvoyant also provided tips, but no sign of Paula was ever found. Both ground and aerial searches were made of the region with no results. On December 22nd, with snow falling and no clue to Paula's whereabouts discovered, the search was officially called off. Plenty of rumors arose around Paula's disappearance. Some people thought she simply wandered off the trail and froze to death somewhere in the woods. Other people suggested Paula had been depressed lately over some trouble she'd been having with her parents disapproving of a mysterious boyfriend, and that she may have run off to elope with her lover. There were people who came forward in the years that followed who claimed to have seen Paula in the surrounding area, but none of these sightings were ever confirmed. Nearly 13 years later, a woman's skeleton was found in the woods near the town of Adams, but medical examiners believe the unidentified skeleton to have belonged to a woman who would have been several years older than Paula. Police did question a suspicious lumberjack who participated in the search for Paula. The man raised suspicions when he began joking around that he knew where Paula's body was buried, and later gave investigators a number of conflicting stories. But there was no evidence ever presented that the man had anything to do with Paula's disappearance. On December 1st, 1949... On the third anniversary of Paula Weldon's disappearance, the next major vanishing occurred, and it may be the strangest of all. James E. Tetford was a resident of the Bennington Soldiers' Home, 
and he had traveled to visit relatives in the northern part of the state. His family put the old man on a bus in St. Albans bound for home, only he never arrived. Witnesses remembered seeing him on the bus at the last stop before Bennington. But when the bus arrived in Bennington, Tetford had vanished. His luggage was still in the overhead rack, and an open bus schedule was lying on his vacant seat. By all accounts, no one could recall seeing Tetford get off the bus, not even the bus driver. Now granted, despite the strange circumstances of the man's disappearance, some people have pointed out that the search for Tetford didn't actually begin for a couple of weeks after his bus trip, and it's possible no one noticed him wandering off between then. The youngest person to disappear was eight-year-old Paul Jepson, who vanished on Columbus Day 1950. Paul's mother and father were farmers and caretakers of the town dump. They went to the dump together, and Paul's mother told him to wait in the pickup truck while she tended to some pigs. She claimed she only left him alone for a few moments before she looked up and realized Paul wasn't in the truck anymore. Paul was wearing a red jacket at the time, and he should have been easy to spot, just like Paula Weldon. But his mother couldn't find him anywhere. Hundreds of volunteers searched the dump, the surrounding roads, and the nearby mountains. They even initiated a double-check system in which one group would search an area, then a second would follow along and search the same area again. Bloodhounds were brought in and managed to track Paul's trail to the junction of East and Chapel Roads before losing the scent. One local legend claims the dogs lost Paul's scent at the exact spot where Paula Weldon was last seen. Paul's father told searchers one odd bit of information. He said that lately Paul had told him he'd had a strange yen to go into the mountains. By now, the local papers were beginning to write openly about the strange pattern of disappearances throughout the area. Grand Canyon University makes earning your degree possible with over 130 academic programs for traditional campus students with more than 80 bachelor's programs offered online. GCU provides you with the personal support you need from complimentary unofficial transcript evaluations within 24 business hours to scholarships, academic support, and your GCU graduation team led by your own university counselor. Find your purpose at GCU. Private. Christian. Affordable. Visit gcu.edu. Just two weeks after Paul Jepson disappeared, they had another name to add to their list. On Saturday, October 28th, 53-year-old Frida Langer was on a hike with her cousin, Herbert Elsner. Frida was a short, ruggedly built woman, and she knew the woods very well. She and her cousin set out from their family camp on the eastern side of Glastonbury Mountain near the Somerset Reservoir. At around 4 o'clock that afternoon, when they were only about a half mile away from camp, Frida slipped into a stream and got wet. She told her cousin she wanted to dash back to camp and change clothes, then hurry back to rejoin him. But as the minutes ticked on and Frida didn't return, Elsner began to get worried. He headed back to camp in the same direction Frida had gone, only there was no sign that she'd ever returned to camp, and no one claimed to have seen her return either. The fact that a second disappearance had occurred so close to Paul Jepson set off alarm bells for authorities. Officials initiated another search, and officers were instructed that they were to stay with the job until Langer was found, dead or alive. Another massive search ensued involving helicopters, amphibious planes, and hundreds of people on foot. But once again, nothing was found. Authorities were baffled how Langer, an experienced woods person who knew the area extremely well, 
could possibly have gotten lost so close to her own camp. On November 5th, groups of 30 searchers each marched side by side in a line across the area. It would have been nearly impossible to miss a clue to the woman's disappearance if it were there to be found, but still, they found nothing. The search parties increased in number over the next several days, including police, firemen, and military personnel. But no clue as to Frida's whereabouts turned up. She was just gone. Vanished. Then on May 12, 1951, Frida Langer's body was discovered near Somerset Reservoir, in an area that had been searched extensively before. Which seems to leave only two options. Either one of the largest search parties in Vermont history managed to miss finding the body of the person they were looking for in an area they searched thoroughly, or someone placed the body there after the search was over. Medical examiners were unable to determine a cause of death for Langer because her body was in such an extreme state of decomposition. She was the only victim whose body was ever recovered. In recent years, author Joseph A. Citro would go on to coin a term describing the Glastonbury region. He called it the Bennington Triangle, after the notorious Bermuda Triangle, where multiple planes and ships are alleged to have vanished. Some hikers have even taken it one step further and refer to the area as the Triangle of Doom. Citro has written a considerable amount on the Bennington Triangle. And although officially there were only five strange disappearances that investigators have linked together, Citro discovered a handful of additional accounts that may be linked as well. In a Vermont newspaper from 1981, he found an article that claimed two years after Paula Weldon's disappearance, a trio of hunters from Massachusetts reportedly vanished in the woods near the town of Glastonbury. But the details are sketchy, and he was unable to even discover their names. He also found another report of a missing Bennington boy named Melvin Hills, who allegedly went missing in the same area around October 11, 1942. In total, Citro found as many as nine reported cases of mysterious disappearances that may have been linked together. Another author named Fessenden S. Blanchard, who also wrote about some of the strange occurrences in the region, recounted a story he'd been told by Arlie Green, the oldest surviving member of the Madison family, whom you may recall were the last official residents of Glastonbury. Green recalled a story of two local men who went fishing on the Peters branch. One went upstream, while the other went downstream. And just like all the other instances, one of them was never seen again. The only clue anyone ever found was a human skull one of the searchers found sitting on a stump near the edge of the water. No one knows whether the skull belonged to the missing fisherman or to someone else. Because there are so few clues and almost no bodies ever discovered, that leaves a lot up to the imagination as to what happened to all those people. First, we have to consider whether these cases are related at all. Granted, we are talking about a group of people disappearing all in roughly the same area. But there don't seem to be any commonalities between them. They were all different sexes and ranging wildly in age, anywhere from 8 to 74. Because they all disappeared in a span of a few years, it's certainly possible there could have been a serial killer stalking those woods back in the day. But if there was a serial killer, he would have been unusual in that he didn't seem to have a single type of victim he preferred. All of the disappearances did occur in the last three months of the year, which may point to some potential clue, but what it means, if anything, who knows? Some residents back then openly wondered if there may have been a killer stalking the woods. 
They sometimes referred to the alleged madman as the Bennington Ripper or the mad murderer of the Long Trail. But in the end, there was just no proof any such individual ever actually existed, or even if all the disappearances were related at all. Of course, with so little to go on, plenty of people have speculated about a supernatural cause for the disappearances. Everything from people being abducted by aliens, to interdimensional gateways opening up and sucking the people into another universe, or even the so-called Bennington Monster. As recently as 2003, people have reported seeing something they described as looking like someone wearing what appeared to be a gorilla suit wandering through the woods. People who subscribe to the supernatural as being the cause of the disappearances often point to such admittedly strange pieces of information, such as, whenever there was snow on the ground, there seemed to be no footprints left behind that pointed to a potential perpetrator or a direction where the missing person might have wandered off to. Other people have speculated that a more mundane explanation could be the answer. Some people have suggested the missing people might have fallen prey to bear attacks or mountain lions. Others suggest they may have literally stumbled into their own doom. Remember, most of these disappearances seem to center around an area full of abandoned towns and settlements like Glastonbury and Patch Hollow. That likely means there could be numerous long-forgotten wells and mine shafts that have been dug throughout the woods that an unsuspecting victim could fall into. There is one more story of a strange disappearance that isn't often lumped in with the other cases I've described here. Although it is equally strange, I'll let you make up your own mind about how it ties in, if it does at all. On November 11, 1943, 37-year-old Carl Herrick was hunting in the woods about 10 miles northeast of Glastonbury with his cousin Henry. At some point, the pair became separated, and Henry made it back to camp but his cousin never showed up. As night began to fall and temperatures began to drop, Henry hurried back to town and contacted the authorities. The search went on for three days without finding any clue as to what happened to Carl. Then, late in the afternoon on the third day, Henry stumbled across Carl's lifeless body lying on the ground in the woods. His rifle was leaning against a tree nearly 70 feet away. Henry reported what he described as huge bear tracks in the snow all around. But what the coroner found when he examined the body didn't point to any bear attack that anyone had ever heard of. In fact, whatever killed Carl defies all rational explanation. You see, whatever killed him squeezed him to death with an enormous amount of strength. Far more than any human being could do. The medical examiner suggested that Carl's chest had been crushed with the amount of force you might see in an automobile accident. Only there was no sign that Carl had been in such an accident, not to mention that his body was found in the woods far from the nearest road. Whatever killed Carl has shattered all his ribs and punctured his lungs internally. The medical examiner was unable to explain what sort of creature could have done that to Carl. Just like no one else has been able to explain what happened to all the people who went missing on and around Glastonbury Mountain. There is one last detail that may or may not point to some sort of explanation as to what was going on in the area. As I mentioned before, long before European settlers ever moved into the area, the region was home to a few Native American tribes. And although these tribes spread out across the land, they all had one thing in common. 
None of them lived on Glastonbury Mountain. According to native folklore, Glastonbury Mountain was cursed. And as a result, the only tribesmen to ever reside on the mountain were the dead. The tribes would bury their dead up on the mountain, but they always made sure to leave before nightfall. For they commonly believed that anyone who attempted to stay up on that mountain would never be seen again. The Conspirators is written and produced by me, Nate Hale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks to everyone for listening. I'm so happy to be able to produce this show for you week after week. If you'd like to help support us, I want to mention that I've added a donate button to the website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can help us to alleviate some of the costs of producing the show. Special thanks to Barbara for donating to the cause, as well as leaving me some very nice comments on our Facebook page. Probably the easiest thing you can do to help us is tell your friends and family about The Conspirators and to encourage them to hit subscribe and leave a positive review on iTunes. Recently, we managed to make it into the iTunes Top 100 Society and Culture Chart, and it would be great if we could make this a regular thing. If you're not on iTunes, we're also always available on Stitcher and the Google Play Store. Thanks so much for tuning in.